BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Well, now, the Doge father. Uh, okay, Doge father. So, yeah. uh, hang on. So, I got, we got some questions. So, for our viewers who may not know anything about this, what are cryptocurrencies? They're a type of digital money, but instead of being controlled by a central government, they're decentralized using blockchain technology. Huh. <laughs> and lately, prices have been soaring for cryptos like Bitcoin, Ethereum, and especially Dogecoin. Elon Musk, the self-proclaimed world's richest man, facing a $258 billion lawsuit over a cryptocurrency alleged to be a pyramid scheme. I'm Anjanette Levy, and welcome to Law & Crime Sidebar Podcast. Elon Musk uh, facing this lawsuit in court in New York. It has been filed by Keith Johnson, and he is accusing Musk of basically acting like Dogecoin had uh, this high value when this man claims, in fact, it didn't have any value. So joining us to talk a little bit about this is Laura Shin. She is the host of the Unchained podcast. She's also the author of the book, Cryptopians. Laura, welcome to Sidebar. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So your general reaction to this lawsuit, this is a major allegation. Obviously, anybody can file a lawsuit, but this is a major claim that cryptocurrency, which we've heard a lot about over the last several years, uh, that Elon Musk, somebody who uh, is a huge name, touted as the world's richest man, that he was running a pyramid scheme with this. So there, there's certainly a lot of substance, I would say, to the lawsuit. Dogecoin is the original, what's called a meme coin, which I'm sure from the name you can gather it's similar to a meme stock. And what a lot of kind of true crypto insiders would say about Dogecoin is that there aren't really strong fundamentals to it. The actual creators of Dogecoin actually made it as a joke. And famously, it does not have a cap on its monetary supply. It has a very high inflation rate. So a lot of the factors that make people kind of find value in other cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or like Ether, they're actually not present with Dogecoin. And so in the suit, you see time and time again that the plaintiffs make or take issue with Elon Musk's tweeting about Dogecoin. And honestly, a lot of it is similar to what the SEC had um, taken issue with in terms of Elon Musk's tweets. And he is sort of a, the king of memes. He's famously somebody who has a very casual uh, presence on Twitter and uh, frankly acts probably more like a troll than like a CEO on Twitter. And so, you know, when you put all that together with his promotion of Dogecoin, then that is essentially what the plaintiffs are upset about in this lawsuit. 
I think it's very interesting that you point that out, that Elon Musk sometimes acts more like a troll on Twitter than a CEO. Uh, I do find some of his tweets amusing, okay? The one where he said he was going to, you know, buy Coke and put the cocaine back in it, you know, the McDonald's tweet. They are amusing, okay? But he is also a very powerful man. And he was trying to buy Twitter at the time. And I get that he was joking, but he his words have power. His words, as you said, have the ability to impact markets. So it's almost like the president of the United States. When the president of the United States speaks, people take notice and they listen. So there really has been a lot of concerns about a concern about his tweeting. Yeah, yeah. And that's what this person, you know, says kind of uh, is is behind uh with the lawsuit, essentially, that Elon Musk had a certain responsibility, perhaps to um, be more prudent with his tweets, uh, maybe to not promote Dogecoin so much. Actually, what this person alleges, frankly, is that Elon Musk was promoting Dogecoin for his own personal gain, uh, financial gain, and that, frankly, people who were in on Dogecoin early would, such as Elon Musk, would benefit from uh, his tweets and, for instance, his appearance on Saturday Night Live, where he also promoted Dogecoin, that moment, frankly, ended up being the high point for the price. And so what you probably had there was that a lot of people who were in Dogecoin early, perhaps Elon Musk being one of them, and frankly, I should say simply actually before before his appearance on Saturday Night Live, I don't know how early, frankly, he was in Dogecoin. But at that time, when he was promoting Dogecoin on Saturday Night Live, many of those insiders probably realized, oh, this is the moment when a lot of kind of everyday investors, a lot of mom and pop type of investors, retail investors are going to be buying into Dogecoin. So this is my opportunity to sell. And that's why the price essentially crashed after that. It has never really recovered um, to the highs that it was at that point. And, you know, one thing I will say, though, is that I'm of two minds when it comes to the lawsuit. On the one hand, certainly um, Elon Musk, uh, you know, I do think that he uh, was probably very well aware that his tweets about Dogecoin would probably move the markets and probably benefit uh, do the Dogecoin price, especially, you know, some of his announcements about how some of his companies were going to be accepting it as payment, et cetera. Um, however, on, you know, on the flip side, if you're the kind of person who chooses to invest in something simply because Elon Musk has tweeted about it or has said positive things about it on Saturday Night Live without really understanding the fundamentals, without really understanding that it had this unlimited inflation rate and that it was, in fact, actually a very high inflation rate and things like that, you know, I'm a, I'm a little bit like, well, you know, you can't. Who who's really to blame here? You know, you didn't do your own research, so you're you're kind of like also partly at fault. So I actually feel that the lawsuit kind of goes too far, um, as if expecting that Elon Musk is going to um, act in uh, anybody but his own best interest, and and to also. Um, yeah, like be like he he's not some educator on Dogecoin, you know. He's uh, frankly, like I said, kind of more like an internet troll than a responsible financial advisor. So, in that regard, um I I'm I'm not sure I would say that this lawsuit definitely has legs. I think the substance of what this person is saying is all true, and yet at the same time, I'm not sure if I would say necessarily that they should win. 
Very interesting. Uh, well, this gentleman, Keith Johnson, is seeking $86 billion in damages, and he says that represents a decline in Dogecoin's market value since May of 21, and he wants that amount tripled. So we will keep an eye on this and see how Elon Musk responds to it. He will be required to do so in federal court in the Southern District of New York. So Laura Shin, thanks so much for coming on today to talk with us about this lawsuit. Thanks for having me. Michael Avenatti, the former Newport Beach attorney who once represented adult film star Stormy Daniels, has just pleaded guilty to several fraud charges in Santa Ana. I don't know about you, but I found this very surprising. Michael Avenatti for years denied that he ever stole from clients. Now he's admitting to doing so in California, and it's millions and millions of dollars. Avenatti, as you'll recall, was a fixture on the cable news channels. I would turn on CNN every night, and he was sitting there with Anderson Cooper. He was on there so much, I thought he'd been made a co-host. Well, you know, if anyone knows a con, I guess it would be Donald Trump uh, based on the last two years. Why is it that you don't call Donald Trump the creepy porn president? He's the one that had sex with a four-month-old son at home with my client without a condom. Now, in this California federal case in which Michael Avenatti is pleading guilty, he has advisory counsel since he wants to represent himself. His name is H. Dean Stewart, and he told me in an email, Mr. Avenatti entered guilty pleas to fully accept responsibility for his actions, save his former clients from the strain of testifying again, and to start the finish to his legal troubles. And someone who knows a whole lot about Michael Avenatti is famed criminal defense attorney Mark Garrigus. Mark has represented lots of famous people. Everybody knows who Mark is. You know who Mark is. He represented Scott Peterson and Michael Jackson and Michael Avenatti. So, Mark, welcome to Law and Crime Sidebar. Thanks for coming on. Uh, full disclosure, Michael was a client of mine with, uh, on his TV case um, in Los Angeles Superior Court, which ended up being rejected by the district attorney and rejected by the city attorney. So I will not say anything negative uh, given the attorney-client relation or the erstwhile attorney-client relationship. But I'll tell you, one of the interesting things that you just mentioned is He did something that is fairly unique today in the federal district court. You would mention that he pled guilty, but he did not do it uh, pursuant to a plea agreement. Did you know that? Or I'm sure you I knew that he, no, there was no plea agreement. He had filed documents with the court saying that he was willing to plead guilty. So I knew that there wasn't an actual plea agreement with the government, which I found very odd. My theory is that he's getting to see the inside of federal prison and maybe doesn't like it so much. Well, I'm, I have a different theory. Let me tell you what I think okay. is. Yours I, is probably right. I haven't talked to him, but many people have tried this and I'll call it a gambit because it is that. It's basically, we call it in the state court pleading open where you can't cut a deal with the prosecutor. So what do you do? You, at least in the state court, even though, for instance, in California, there's a prohibition on plea bargaining, you have a sense that whatever bench officer or judge you're in front of is going to do better than the prosecutor will. The prosecutor is acting um, in in an intransigent manner. Here, if you believe what was filed, both by him and by the government, and the government did a filing in response, the, he tried to work out a plea agreement. He is what's called pro se. So he's got advisory counsel, but he doesn't have a lawyer who is representing him. They Apparently, those talks fell apart. 
So what he did was he entered a plea to, I believe it was five counts today. There still are a number of counts, uh, numerous counts left. Now the ball, the kind of the ball is in the prosecutor, the uh, uh, AUSAs and the um, uh, the Department of Justice's court. They have to decide. Okay, he pled guilty. He admitted various elements, including if you read the transcript today, he was specifically asked whether he had a corrupt intent. The reason for that is that's an element of the crime, and it will probably. Uh, supply one of the elements that they need for some of the counts that he didn't plead to. The government has to decide, are we going to go through with a trial here or are we going to just forget about it and have him sentenced on these counts since he already got sentenced in the New York cases, both cases, and not waste everybody's time? That's kind of what he did. Yeah, and the reason I call it a gambit, I've known people who've done this, and it doesn't always work out well. In fact, most of the time, it's a disaster. Very interesting. Well, uh, in all of my reading in this case, uh, it sounded like Michael Avenatti wanted to try to take you down with him in some fashion. He kept trying to uh, invoke your name in the Nike case uh, in federal court in documents. Yeah, I, and that's, you know, I, I understand that. I mean, the I, and as I indicated, I, he's an ex-client. I'm not going to demean him, and I get it. I suppose I could pile on, but that's the last thing I want to do. I always feel like somebody who's been kind of uh, eaten up uh, and chewed up and spit out by the system has got enough issues, and um, it is what it is. I mean, it's a sad end. You know, I was thinking about this, not the plea, but... There's also another case going on. In fact, it may be going to the jury today in Orange County. I don't know if you followed this, Anjanette, but Brian Panish, who's one of the best plaintiff's lawyers in the country, and Brian is representing the the widower of the woman who was killed by Alec Baldwin. Brian, Brian had a case with Michael well before I ever did, and Brian had worked with Michael for many years or many years ago at a uh, at one of the better law firms in town, plaintiff's firms in town. And he was dragged into yet another lawsuit that has gone to trial involving um, a fee dispute, if you will, in Orange County. And so it's a sad, sad kind of end to what could have been a a brilliant, brilliant career. And uh, I think Brian said it best is you don't get to the point where Michael was without being a good lawyer. And clearly he was a good lawyer. But, uh, you know, I think to quote Michael at a certain point, he flew close, too close to the sun. Brian Panish, yes, I, I know exactly who you're talking about because I've covered the rest case and he had a press conference that was uh, very good. It was very interesting about that oh, case. Right. And he did one of those things that I think uh, all good plaintiff's lawyers do is he had done a recreation, a kind of an AI, I think it was an AI version of a uh, image reconstruction of the shooting and how it happened. And it was pretty devastating. And it also, in the court of public opinion, I think, really turned things uh, in an effective way. Uh, Brian, uh, at least if you've been following the legal ins and outs, and I realize that this is kind of getting into the minutia, was not happy about having to testify this week down in Orange County, um, but did it. And, you know, like all of us who it's a small legal community and it was, uh, it, it, 
this was in any way you look at it, a tragedy for his ex-clients, a tragedy for him and his family. And um, there's no real winners. No, not at all. Uh but I, I do think it is a stunning fall from grace, even though Michael Avenatti, you said, is a former client and you won't speak in any ill way about him. Again, you, know, you heard the expression, I don't speak ill of the dead. I don't speak ill under the California Business and Professions Code. You don't speak or demean your ex But it is a stunning, I'll say it. It's a stunning fall from grace. This is a guy that people were saying could run for president. Uh, a lot of the media loved him because he hated Trump and he was willing to take Trump on and and speak loudly at him in, in almost Trump-esque fashion. So uh, I do think it's a really sad thing because uh, this is somebody who obviously, as you said, flew too closely to the sun and was in dire was need of money. Too. Somebody who um, wrote a book, and I don't want to misquote who it was, but had done a, a book and described Trump's reaction if you believe that, and God only knows how they were in the room, but Trump apparently was mightily impressed, even as Avenetti was taking him on and wanted somebody of that kind of ilk. And Michael, for whatever you say about him, was photogenic and kind of went where a lot of people wouldn't go. And um, did he cross a line? And has he crossed the line? It's obvious uh, given today in his admissions uh, that that's that's no longer an issue. I'll be interested to see what comes for him down the road and uh, what happens with him. And when he one day gets out of prison, what his life is like and if he's uh, learned any lessons from this. Mark Garrigus, thank you so much for coming on to talk with us about this. We always appreciate your insight and your time. Thank you. With any luck, we'll see you in California very soon if you can prevail upon a <laughs> superior court judge to uh, do uh, uh, Depp Redux. <laughs> I sure hope so. There are times when I come across stories that really rock my faith and humanity. And the story of Marcus Faisal is one of those. He was a little boy who was reported missing by his foster parents back in 2006. And it later came to light uh, that he had been killed by them, by his foster parents and uh, a woman who was having threesomes with them. And then they burned his body. And now his foster father is up for parole. Joining me to talk about this is the prosecutor in Hamilton County, Ohio, which is Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, Joe Dieters. Joe, welcome to Sidebar. Thanks for coming on. Tell us about Marcus Faisal. If you were in Cincinnati at the time, it was um, a gut-wrenching, riveting story when we didn't know what happened to Marcus because the, the foster parents, Liz and David Carroll, had faked an abduction in a little park in Hamilton County called Julius Park. They lived in Claremont County, which is just the east of Hamilton County. But they drove a short distance into Hamilton County and faked a disappearance. They were going to, we learned later, they were thinking about doing it at a Bengals game at Kings Island. But there are too many cameras around, so they chose not to. They decided to use the Jules Park. But basically what happened in, in August of 2006, they were going on a fan. They had, Marcus was a foster child. They got he was he had some disabilities, mental disabilities, probably autistic. And they got thirty three and a half dollars 
a day more to handle Marcus as a foster child because of his his mental disability. Still, with a mental disability, he was a very cute little boy. You know, he's struggling to get through. He, he was he's little, and you know, they went on a family reunion in early August. They decided, as believe it or not, they had in the past done this with Marcus. We learned later. Uh, they took him, wrapped him in a blanket like a cocoon, rolled him up, and then used packing tape and wrapped the blanket so he couldn't get out, and put him in a in a playpen in a closet, which our coroner told us probably got to around 150 degrees. And when they came back about 30 hours later, Marcus was dead. So then they faked his disappearance. And the eastern side of Hamilton County in particular, there was a huge outpouring of support trying to find Marcus, thinking he may have wandered into a woods or anything like that. And this went on for basically two weeks. Finally, we, the detectives, the sheriff's office called, said they, they had reached a total dead end on it. Uh, we knew about Amy Baker. She was the living girlfriend. And we decided on a strategy to bring Amy Baker and Liz Carroll, get, serve them with forthwith subpoenas on a Monday morning, throw them in a police car, bring them to the prosecutor's office. And Amy Baker was given a public defender and I, along with Mark Pietmeyer, who runs my criminal division, and Woody Breyer um, and her defense attorney sat in a small conference room in my office. And um, she started telling the same bullcrap story that she's been telling with the Carols, that he just disappeared at, uh, while there, she was, uh, the mom, Liz, was at, a, at the park. And I just told her bluntly, I said, ma'am, you don't know me, but I'm telling you right now, you're going to go in front of this grand jury. And if you lie, you're going to prison. I can promise you that. So the defense attorney asked for some time. They, we said, sure, we left. The prosecutors left. And, um, and her lawyer was in there with her for over an hour, probably an hour and a half, and came out. And he was, he was totally ashen-faced. He was just in shock because he had learned what happened to this kid. He said, I'll, I'll tell you exactly what, she'll tell you what happened, but you know, I need to protect her. I'm her lawyer. I said, and I told him, Amy Baker does not have a duty of care to Marcus Faisal. Should she have intervened? Hell yes, she should have morally, but ethically she should have done it. Legally, she had no requirement to do that. So it would be like if you go in a Kroger store and you see some woman beating the hell out of her kid. And should you intervene? Yeah, probably. But if you don't intervene, is that a, you're already breaking the law? No, you're not. So the, the duty of care to Marcus was with Liz and David Carroll. And they're the ones that wrapped him. They're the ones that put him in the closet. Anyway, um, she told us what happened. We put her in front of a grand jury. She told the grand jury what happened. Everyone was like horrified. And then we brought Liz Carroll in cold in front of the grand jury. And she started telling that same nonsensical story about Julius Park. Mark Pietmeyer, I was in the grand jury with him. Mark asked her, well, what about the family reunion? What'd you do with Marcus then? And you could just see in her face. I mean, she knew it was over, that we knew. And um, she told us the whole story. Liz did. 
We arrested both of them. We decided Don White was a prosecutor in Claremont County. Mark Tacalvi is now, but we decided to try the case in Claremont County. That's where the kid was actually killed. We decided Claremont County would be a lot cleaner. So, how, uh, Joe, how is David Carroll already up for parole? Okay, what happened was, yeah, that's a good question. What happened was they're being tried separately in Claremont County. And I remember the discussions very clearly. Uh, Mark, Pete Meyer, and Woody Breyer, who was the first assistant in Claremont County, came to both me and Don White and said, look, they're charged with murder. Um, if they plead guilty to the murder, it's 15 to life. The accompanying charges like false alarm and all that stuff would be dismissed. But they would plead guilty to murder and get 15 to life. So Liz's trial was first. I'm sure David Carroll talked her into going to trial. She went to a jury. She was found guilty within like four hours. Jury deliberate. It probably took him longer to pick a foreman. They came back guilty as charged on the murder. As is, as usually happens when you show no remorse and you um, force a case to trial, a jury trial in particular, you're going to get jammed up by this judge. I mean, it just happens. And she got 51, I think 51 to life when she was found guilty of all these charges. And she was sentenced and, and was sent away. The next week or so was David Carroll's trial. And he saw obviously what happened to Liz Carroll. And he decided, you know what? 15 to life doesn't sound so bad. So he, um, he took the 15 to life. So Liz is in jail for a long time. David got 15 to life. And we're at that point now where we have to argue that he should stay in jail for the rest of his life. And that's what we asked the public because the parole board doesn't listen to me. They don't listen to Mark to call me from Claremont County. They listen to the public. And we asked the public to get a hold of the parole board and say, this guy should never get out. What he did to this little boy is unconscionable. And, you know, I said this in the press conference, Anjanette, I hope he's a great prisoner. He's a model prisoner. He's saved. He preaches. I don't care what he does. He should never get out of jail for what he did to Marcus. How do people reach out to the parole board? They can go to our website, Hamlin County Prosecutor's Office, and we have an area on the website called Parole Watch, and David Carroll's, I think, the first case. And you can click on that, and you can express your concerns or discuss that he could potentially get out. And all of those will be forwarded to the parole board. And we'll be at the parole hearing, I'm sure. Well, Hamilton County Prosecutor Joe Dieters, thanks so much for being on with us today to talk about this awful, awful sad case. Okay, Anjanette, anytime. And that's it for this edition of Law and Crime Sidebar Podcast. We will see you next time. Sidebar is produced by Sam Goldberg and Sean Bauer. Bobby Zoki is our YouTube manager and Alyssa Fisher is our booking producer. I'm Anjanette Levy and we'll see you next time.